Welcome to the Walk With Me podcast. I'm Pastor Stephen Bond from Divine Church in Chapel Hill, Tennessee, and I am so excited that you are walking with me. What that means is we are walking together through God's Word, just about three chapters a day, and uh, you're going to get the most out of this if you read these chapters independently and then listen to the podcast, but they're going to be short, 10 to 15 minutes each day, something you can listen to at the start or the finish of each day, and I believe that it'll bless you as it's blessed. Me. I'm stepping, I'm stepping out on your word. I'm stepping, I'm stepping out on your word. I'm stepping, I'm stepping out on your word. Today's passage comes from Psalm 16, 17, and 18. And I'm going to try to talk um, extremely fast today because this is a really meaty uh, three chapters that we're going to be covering today. Um, And so starting off in chapter 16, uh, we have David speaking here. I think all three Psalms are penned by David. Um, But, you know, he says to to the Lord, starting off in verse 2, he says, You're my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. And this is the stature that David took. It was a stature of, uh, of, of humility. It was a posture of humility. This is actually what made him great. Okay? There's really no... Um, greater quality in a leader or a man or a woman of God than one who is humble enough to know that everything good in them exists from God, yet also confident enough to know that everything good in them has come from God. Okay, Humility is not the hanging of your head low. It's actually the lifting of your head high because you know God is in you. Um, But it's very different from arrogance, which is false confidence. Arrogance is a pride, and it's everything good is in me, and everyone else is not as good as I am. Uh, That's where we get pride, and that everything that I've done, I've done by my own strength. Now, Israel's history was that God had appointed a king named Saul, who had started off uh, humble, which most prideful people at one point were humble. But pride is sneaky. It's not, a, it's not a character trait, like having a sense of humor. It's not something that people are necessarily just born being prideful or being humble. Some of the most prideful people at one time were probably some of the most humble people. But as success comes and as blessings come, you have to resist the natural tendency to claim these things to your own credit. And you must humble yourself. Okay, now that means to bow low to the Lord, to surrender to him, to submit to him and to acknowledge, as David does here, you are my Lord and I have no good apart from you. You're the only reason I'm winning wars. You're the only reason I'm slaying giants. You're the only reason my head has been anointed. You're the only reason I'm having any success at all. Okay, we must maintain that confession. Okay. And um, then he goes on to say, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. You know, and so what he is saying here is not only am I maintaining a, a, a humility and an understanding that all of my strength comes from God, but I only surround myself and do I rejoice in the company 
of people who also maintain this confession. I don't run with those who run after other gods. Okay? And I would take it a step further. I don't run with people who are not running after my God as fast as I am. Okay? Imagine yourself to, to start to train for a marathon or to begin to run with a group of friends. You don't want to pick a group of friends that aren't going to show up half the time when you guys schedule to meet at 7 a.m. or 6 a.m. You don't want to, to, to schedule it with a group of people that only show up half the time. You know, and half the time they're at Krispy Kreme, and half the time they're, at their, they're still pushing snooze. That's not a good group of people to run with you. Now, you love them, and you've got no problem with them, but you're like, hey, i got to run with people that are a little more faithful than that. Well, then you pick you some people that will show up on time every day. Well, praise God, now you've got some people that are running with you. The only problem is that they don't really run as much as they walk right they 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 get there and they show up but when they're there they just kind of stroll along and talk okay that's not really going to make you better but what about if you went up to the local you know uh high school and you picked out the track team and you said what what time do you guys run they go we run at 5 a.m and you go i'll be there and you start running with people that not only are as faithful as you but they run even faster than you that's the kind of people that you need to run with because those kind of people you'll fight to keep up with. And I'm talking spiritually here. So you need to surround yourself with people that run after God as fast or faster than you. Okay? It's those sort of people that, that will continue to motivate you in your pursuit. Now, none of us are immune from being around slow people and unfaithful people. Uh, our job is to champion those people on, to encourage them, to invite them to run alongside of us, and then to encourage them, um, you know, to keep up. Hey, keep going, keep going. You know, there's no judgment, but you need to surround yourself with some fast runners as your core group of people, okay? And he says, the, uh, goes on to say, the Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. You know, he's just thanking the Lord that, he not only has the Lord made things go well for him, but he is saying the Lord is the best thing that's ever happened to him. Okay, he, you've given me good things. You've provided for me in many ways, but you are still my favorite thing out of everything that I have. And that's one of the secrets to humility, too, is that we don't get so caught up in, in always associating uh, the goodness of God with the gifts of God. The, the greatest thing about God is God. He himself is the best thing about him. It's in his presence. It's like a father. The best thing about a father shouldn't be the gifts that he gives. The best thing about a father should be the time that we spend with him, the tutelage that he brings, the, the, the wisdom, the companionship, the comfort. And David says, Lord, the best thing is that I've got you. You give me counsel in the night and my, you use my heart to instruct me. You've, and uh, he says, uh, you make my heart glad, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. And, and that's, David is saying that he's a man that's existed in high mountaintop seasons and in low, deep valley seasons. But he's acknowledging that when I'm in your presence, there is a fullness of joy. And that is so true, regardless of what we're going through. Circumstances don't have the ability to, prov to provide joy. 
okay? They have the ability to provide temporary happiness and they have the ability to provide atmospheres that are easier to pursue God in, but no atmosphere has the ability in and of itself to actually provide joy, okay? I have been on vacations and been to nice places and drove nice cars and had, uh, you know, good numbers in my bank account and all of these things are nice, but they did not in and of themselves provide for me any joy at all. But in the sweetness of my mornings with the Lord, in the privacy of his presence, and in the sitting and the dwelling on his word, I have felt fullness of joy like I have never felt anywhere else. I have felt pleasures forevermore, as David said, and I concur to that. And we should be hungry for that and seek after that. In Psalm 17, he goes on to say, you have tried my heart and visited me by night. You have tested me, but you will find nothing. You know, and he says, Lord, um, <clears throat> would you be would you be my vindicator? Would you keep me as the apple of your eye? You know, w w w there, there are people in this world and they're out to get me. But I ask, Lord, that you would look at me and that you would uh, vindicate me according to what I deserve. You know, I'm not asking you to smite them because I don't like them. I'm just asking for you to be just as I know that you will be. Okay, sometimes we're so selfish. We think that, that our God is, is no one else's God. Okay, David doesn't think that way. He says, Lord, you're the God of, you're my God and you're the God of the righteous and you're the God of this world. Would you do in this circumstance what's right and what's just? Okay, and, and so he goes on and he prays that and, he, and then at the end of this he says, um, confront them, subdue them, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I, when I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. We've touched on this before. David's acknowledging not that uh, unrighteous people uh, live lives of complete barrenness, not that, not that people who are unrighteous never experience blessing. They do. And in fact, the word even says that he draws uh, us to repentance by kindness. So the Lord is even, uh, I believe, sometimes unusually kind to the unrighteous, hoping in which to romance them to himself. But he says, that's all fine and well. When they die, they die. But me, I'll awake and I'll be satisfied by seeing you face to face. David had this unusual ability to always keep his eyes on what lied ahead of him and knowing that this life was temporary and no matter what took place here, that when he died, he believed by faith that he would be with you forevermore. He would be with the Lord forevermore. That was, that was his mentality, is that he would be with the Lord. And when you can maintain that mentality, there's really no greater source of strength than that than to keep our eyes off of earth and onto heaven. And it's very difficult because we're temporarily located here, right? And it's very hard to keep my eyes off of the place where my feet are standing. But we need to be people that know that no matter what takes place here, I have a heavenly home that is far greater than this and not be jealous or frustrated by the successes 
that the people experience, may experience around me, even if they're wicked, I don't need to have the mentality of, what about me, God? I'm righteous. Why am I not getting my things? It's not that way at all. He's saying, you already have a treasure more than they'll ever fathom because you have me. That's what David said. He said, I know you're my portion. You're the best thing ever, and I have you. And so, yes, they've got other things, and they have their riches and their wealth, and they're going to die, and people that they barely know are going to inherit those things. But as for me, my inheritance is you, Lord, and no one can take you away from me. And that's what the Lord Jesus says as well, right? Store your treasures in heaven where moth and vermin cannot come and destroy them or take them. And so we need to make sure that Jesus is always our most valuable possession. And I believe that the Lord does reward those who acknowledge that because David does become a wealthy man. But for us in Christ, I think a lot of times the Lord is faithful and kind enough to withhold from us the riches of this earth until we have reached a place of heart where we believe that he is the greatest thing that we'll ever possess. And then it's almost as though he can open up the windows of heaven a little bit and let a little bit of the storehouses of earthly gain and some of these other things become upon us because they won't change our heart, right? He's a good father, so he gives to his children according to their ability to um, possess it. And, and to control it and not be controlled by it, okay? And so David was that way, and Solomon was that way. When David's son Solomon was asked from the Lord, what can I give you? He didn't ask for wealth. He didn't ask for money. He didn't ask for fame. He, he didn't ask for influence. He asked for wisdom. And because of that, God said, you know, because you asked for wisdom, I'm going to give you everything. You're going to have influence. You're going to have wealth. You're going to have fame. But I'm... but but. I'm doing it because I know you can handle it because what you really desire is wisdom. And I believe the same is true for us. When we really desire the Lord, then he can start to give us some of the other stuff because it won't take his place in our hearts. Now, in chapter 18, this is about 50 verses of scripture. And it's a song of triumph and victory because it was written after the Lord had delivered David from the hand of Saul, who was his his greatest foe because Saul wanted him dead because he was jealous because the Lord had chosen David to take Saul's seat on the throne because of his pride and his arrogance. So he was against um, uh, the very new person that God was equipping and anointing and appointing to take his seat. And you can imagine that. So, but as he goes through these amazing, uh, this amazing testimony, you'll have to read this on your own. But he says things in this like, I'm just going to call upon the name of the Lord who is worthy to be praised. You know, uh, he sent uh, from on high and he drew me out of many waters. He, he dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He rewarded me. You know, because with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. And with the blameless, you show yourself blameless. You know, and, and by you, I can run against a troop. And by my God, I can leap over a wall. You know, he made my feet like the feet of a deer. You know, he trains my hands for war. He's going through all of these amazing things. And you have to understand the context of David's, uh, David's war against Saul was one where he wasn't fighting it offensively. He did not want to take Saul's place by force. He wanted God to do it. In fact, there were two times where he could have ended Saul's life for himself, probably more than that, but two times when it would have been easy for him to do it. But instead of doing it, he had this understanding of, I can't lay my hand 
upon the Lord's anointed, I know and I trust that the Lord will deal with me according to my righteousness and he will reward me in his own due season. He let God work. Listen, if we're going to gain something from chapter 18, it's this. Let God work. Let God be God. You focus on the integrity of your heart. You focus on the righteousness of your ways and the way in which you're walking. And let God be God. Don't ever try to take anything by selfish gain or try to manipulate your way to new opportunities. Don't sit around and daydream of how you could make it to the top. You know, the world will tell you this is what you have to do and you have to hustle and you have to grind. But David didn't do any of that and he became the king of all of Israel. You know, because he let God be God. And God's eyes, we talked about this in our last session, God's eyes are searching all over the earth, looking to find those who will seek him. And if he finds you as a person who is seeking him and someone who is humble, then he will exalt you in ways that you could never exalt yourself. It says, for you save a humble people. This is verse 27. But the haughty eyes you bring down. And so he is saying, Lord, I know and I trust that you can do all things and you have brought this victory to me. I didn't do it myself. And how amazing is it when you actually do let God work? Because then you're equipped with a testimony. It wasn't like, yeah, I came up behind Saul like a fishing story. You know, yeah, I came up behind Saul. He was a big old boy and I sliced his head off and everyone goes, wow, David, you're amazing. It's no, no, no. God did this. God of Israel, he did this. And every victory I've ever had, he's given me. I love it in verse 33 where he says, you've made my feet like the feet of a deer. You've set me secure on the heights. You know, and, and this is true of a deer. This is true of a, of, a, uh, of a goat and the way in which the Lord has made their feet where they can literally tread upon unstable surfaces. They can go up and down mountains and they can go through things without slipping, without stumbling, without falling because of the security of their feet. And, and David is saying the same as what we should say is, Lord, you have made me to where I can withstand anything. I can be in the highs and in the lows. You're training my hands for war. You've made it to where my arms can bend a, a bow of bronze. And so we need to, we need to understand that too. God, if God wants us to do something, he'll equip us to be able to do it. Okay. And so he goes through all of this and it's just a song of praise. And, and he finishes by just saying, Lord, I will praise you among the nations and I will sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed. And he says, you've given me favor. People that I don't even know now serve me. I come upon strangers and they're already afraid of me. And that's what the Lord does to, to those who seek him is he provides for them favor. Uh, church, you can't make favor. You can't create it. It's only God given and it's only given by God to those who humble themselves before the Lord and acknowledge that he is the only one who can train my hands for war. The only one who can make my feet secure to stand on the side of a mountaintop. He is my portion. He's the best thing that I've got. He is the only one that I'm trusting for vindication and vengeance. I won't take it into my own hands. And he is my God, the, the shield of my salvation. We need to maintain that confession in our lives and let, be, let God be God and will be us.